0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish Hour. This week we'll start reading from the Times of Israel, the first article, Israel warns of overt and covert response if Hezbollah rocket fire continues by Emmanuel Fabian and Judah Ari Gross. Israel is preparing a wide range of military and covert responses to a barrage of 19 rockets fired at Israel on Friday by the Hezbollah terror group, a defense official said noting that the severity will depend on how the situation develops. The Israel Defense Forces has in recent days taken action with large-scale strikes in Lebanon, mostly with artillery, artillery and with strikes on infrastructure with fighter jets, as we haven't done for years, the official said in a statement. The defense establishment is preparing additional options for a response through different means, overt and covert in accordance with developments in the field. The continuation of our activities will be in accordance with operational needs and a time frame that is best suited for Israel, the official added. The UN peacekeeping mission in Lebanon, known by its acronym UNIFIL, said the situation was very dangerous and that the rockets launched at Israel were fired outside of its area of operation in southern Lebanon. This is a very dangerous situation, with escalatory actions seen on both sides over the past two days, Unifil said in a statement. Unifil is actively engaging with the parties through all formal and informal liaison and coordination mechanisms to prevent the situation from spiraling out of control, the mission added. Meanwhile, Lebanon's caretaker, Prime Minister Hassan Diab, called on the United Nations to pressure Israel to stop violating Lebanese sovereignty and restore calm to the area. Nineteen rockets were fired into northern Israel from Lebanon on Friday morning, sending residents in a number of towns in the Golan Heights and Galilee Panhandle scrambling to shelters. The Israel Defense Forces said ten projectiles were intercepted by the Iron Dome missile defense system, and six landed in open areas around Mount Dove. Another three rockets failed to clear the border and landed in Lebanese territory, according to the military. The Iran-backed Hezbollah terror group confirmed it had fired the projectiles on Friday, which it said came in response to recent Israeli airstrikes in Lebanon. The Islamic resistance shelled open areas near the Shaba farms, with dozens of 122 millimeter rockets, it said in a statement carried in Arabic language media, referring to the Mount Dove area. The barrage was believed to be the first to be formally acknowledged by Hezbollah since the 2006 Second Lebanon War. Israel responded with artillery strikes. Witnesses reported artillery fire by Israeli forces on the Lebanese side of Sheba Farms and outside the town of Kfar Shuba. Sheba Farms is an enclave where the borders of Israel, Lebanon, and Syria meet. Israel said it is part of the Golan Heights, which it captured from Syria in 1967 and later annexed. Lebanon and Syria say Sheba Farms belongs to Lebanon, while the United Nations says the area is part of Syria. The attack sparked tensions between locals and Hezbollah. Videos circulated on social media after the rocket attack showing two vehicles including a mobile rocket launcher being stopped by villagers in the southeastern village of Shwaya in Hasbaya region near the border with the Golan Heights. Some angry villagers who belong to the Druze sect could be heard saying Hezbollah is firing rockets from between homes so that Israel hits us back. Hezbollah later issued a statement saying that the rockets were fired from remote areas, adding that the fighters were stopped in Shwaya on their way back. The Islamic resistance was and will always be most keen about the safety of its people and avoiding any harm to them through its acts of resistance, the statement said. The Lebanese army said it arrested the four people who had launched the rockets and seized the rocket launcher after it was intercepted by villagers. Thursday's early morning airstrikes were in response to a previous rocket attack from Lebanon on Wednesday. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kohavi, and other security officials were to hold talks to review Israel's potential courses of action following Friday's attack. Gantz held an earlier meeting with Kohavi and other senior officers with a statement from his office saying he stressed the importance of maintaining close contact and providing the home front with ongoing updates. The defense minister also spoke with mayors of northern border communities and asked them to remain in close contact with the military. Military spokesperson Ron Kohav told reporters on Friday that that Israel— has no intention of going to war, but we do not want to turn the Lebanon border into a line of confrontation. The incident shows Hezbollah is deterred as it fired at open areas, Kohav added. He also asserted Hezbollah intentionally fired the rockets at open areas and not at Israeli towns or communities. Still, the Iron Dome system was activated to intercept some of the rockets, which is usually only done when projectiles are heading for populated areas military bases, or key infrastructure. This is a moderate response from Hezbollah as not to escalate the situation, Kohaf said. Recent attacks had been blamed on local Palestinian groups in Lebanon and not the powerful Hezbollah. However, Hezbollah maintains tight control over southern Lebanon making it uh, unlikely that such attacks would be conducted from this area without at least its tacit approval. On Wednesday, three rockets were fired into northern Israel from Lebanon. Two rockets hit open areas while the third fell short of the border. In response, the Israel Defense Forces fired artillery shells at targets in Lebanon just after the attack. Some two hours later, it followed up with a second and a third round before conducting airstrikes toward terror infrastructure and rocket launching sites, according to the military. Rocket fire from Lebanon has been exceedingly rare in the 15 years since the 2006 Second Lebanon War Israel fought against Hezbollah, though it has occurred sporadically. Recent months, however, have seen a slight uptick with 10 launches aimed at Israel during May 11th, uh, May's 11-day war in Gaza, as well as last month, leading to fears among some that the phenomenon could be more common, as has happened in areas on the Gaza border. Israel has conveyed to Lebanon via UN peacekeepers that it could intensify its response if calm is not returned to the border. Without getting into the identity of who shot the rockets, it's clear that the Lebanese government bears full responsibility for any fire at the State of Israel's territory, the IDF said in a Hebrew language statement. The Lebanese state lacks control over terror groups operating within it. And next from the Times of Israel, after Gantz threatens attack, Iran warns Israel, don't test us, by AFP and Times of Israel staff. Iran's foreign ministry warned arch-foe Israel on Thursday not to take military action against the Islamic Republic after the Jewish state threatened Iran over a deadly tanker attack. In another brazen violation of international law, Israeli regime now blatantly threatens Iran with military action Ministry spokesman Said Khatizabe to- uh, said on Twitter. The MT Mercer Street managed by prominent Israeli billionaire Eyal Ofer was attacked off Oman last week. A British security guard and a Romanian crew member were killed in what the United States, Britain and the vessels operator Zodiac Maritime said appeared to be an Iranian drone strike. We state this clearly. Any foolish act against Iran will be met with decisive response, Katizbada said. Don't test us, he warned. Earlier on Thursday, Defense Minister Benny Gantz said Israel is prepared to militarily engage directly with Iran. Asked in an interview with the Ynet news site whether Israel was ready to strike in Iran if need be, Gantz responded simply yes. Israel, he added, is nevertheless focused on an effort to mobilize the international community to rein Tehran in because we can't tag Iran as solely an Israeli problem and absolve the rest of the world from this issue. The world needs to deal with Iran, the region needs to deal with Iran, and Israel also needs to do its part in this situation, Gantz said. On Tuesday, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said his government was working on enlisting the world in response to the attack, but warned, we also know how to act alone. The Iranians need to understand that it is impossible to sit peacefully in Tehran. From there, ignite the entire Middle East. That is over, Bennett said. Both the United States and Israel have said their intelligence assessments of the July 29th incident concluded that an Iranian drone attacked the ship, charges that Iran denies. On Tuesday, the crew of a Panama-flagged asphalt tanker off the coast of Oman reportedly managed to thwart an attempt by Iranian gunmen to take control of their ship and divert it to the Islamic Republic. Five or six Iranian operatives stormed the Asphalt Princess, but the crew on board quickly sprung to action and sabotaged the ship's engines so that it could not move any further, UK officials told British daily The Times on Wednesday. There have been several reported attacks on Iranian ships in recent months that Tehran has linked to Israel. In March, Iran said it was considering all options after an attack on a cargo ship in the Mediterranean that it blamed on Israel. In April, Tehran said its freighter Savitz was hit by an explosion in the Red Sea after media reports said that Israel had targeted the ship. The New York Times reported that it was a retaliatory attack by Israel for Iran's earlier strikes on Israeli ships. Iran has also accused Israel of sabotaging its nuclear sites and killing a number of its scientists. And next an op-ed from Times of Israel Editor-in-Chief David Horovitz. Enough of the legal gymnastics, why Israel should let its gold medalist marry. Oleg Dolkopiat brought his family to Israel 12 years ago from Ukraine because I'm Jewish, he said this week after his son Artem became only the second Israeli in Olympic history to win a gold medal. Oleg's wife, Angela, however, is not Jewish. Thus, while the family was accorded automatic citizenship in Israel, where the law of return requires one Jewish grandparent for citizenship, Artem is not able to marry here since Judaism is transferred through the generations via matrilineal descent according to Halacha, Jewish religious law. Halakha prohibits mixed marriages, and Israel has no provision for civil marriage. A 2010 law provides for civil union, but this is a complex and limited arrangement, not a marriage, and is available, moreover, only to those deemed to be members of no recognized religion. Alongside the artistic gymnast's world-beating success in the floor exercise at Tokyo, marked by his extraordinary sang and humility, Artem's state-imposed romantic limbo has been the second story of his new prominence. True to his understated and apparently unruffleable character, Artem, 24, has declined to be drawn into the controversy, saying mildly on Monday that I think it's not so appropriate to talk about in front of the whole country. These are things that are in my heart and my own personal issues, so I'd rather not answer that. His fiance Maria Sakovich has also resolutely refused to make a public fuss. Not being able to get married in Israel was not a problem for me, she told the AFP news agency on Tuesday. After good-naturedly holding up her engagement ring for the cameras, she told Israel's Channel 12 that she knew they could go abroad to get married, but haven't found the time to do so because of Artem's gymnastic commitments. And there lies the absurdity of the current situation in Israel where an estimated 400,000 Israeli citizens, Jewish enough to qualify for citizenship but not halakhically Jewish, cannot get married here but can have their civil marriage recognized by the state if they wed overseas. It is admirable and proper that the law of return offers citizenship in a Zionist response to the Nazis. If you were Jewish enough to be targeted for genocide by Adolf Hitler, you were Jewish enough to be guaranteed a home in the world's only Jewish state. And nobody is asking the guardians of halakha to abandon the principles of religious Jewish law. We know the rules of the game, Sokovic told Channel 12, but there is no adequate reason why the Israeli state authorities should not introduce the self-same uh, facility. For civil marriage here, that they accept when their citizens marry in a civil ceremony overseas. Opponents of civil marriage in Israel claim that it risks complica- that it risks complicating or diluting Israel's Jewish character, but that's an argument that's hard to follow. Those hundreds of thousands of Israeli not quite Jews are not seeking to sneak into halachic Judaism. They're not pushing for a quickie, insincere conversion their state documentation after a civil marriage would not represent their Jewish status, if they can move to Israel, fight in the IDF for Israel, and now win a gold medal for Israel, they should be allowed to get married in Israel. Finally, just a word on one of the loveliest moments of these Olympics when another Middle Easterner, Qatar's high jumper, Mutaz Essa Barshim, also secured his country's second ever gold. Barshim had been locked in a competition with his rival and friend, Italy's Gianmarco Tomberi, for two hours, and they simply could not be separated. Both were error-free in clearing the bar up to 2.37 meters, then both failed three times to clear 2.39, the Olympic record height. They were headed for a jump-off when it occurred to Barshim to ask the, f- the official in charge, can we have two golds? a request ostensibly at odds with the purest principles of sporting competition. Actually, it's possible, the official said from behind his mask and began to elaborate, but Barshim and Tamberi were no longer listening. They had already exchanged glances of joint assent and slapped hands, and Tamberi had high-jumped into Barshim's hips and wrapped both arms around his neck. Those two, at least, are bound together in marriage, Olympic gold medal style. And next, a piece distributed by JTA. Did a pro-Palestinian U.S. campus group actually call for defunding Hillel? By Ben Sales. For the past several months, American Jews concerned about anti-Semitism on campus have had their eyes trained on Rutgers University. In May, the chancellor of the school's flagship New Brunswick campus condemned anti-Semitism, then apologized for doing so after the campus chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine complained. The next month, unions representing lecturers at the university issued statements calling Israel's actions apartheid. The school's longtime Hillel director stepped down at the end of June, Warning that the college campus has been, for as long as I've been at Hillel, the fount of anti-Semitism in America. So when social media posts began popping up last week accusing the Rutgers chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine of calling to defund Hillel, it seemed to confirm many people's fears. Jewish activists on Twitter echoed the accusation and condemnations poured in from sources including an aide to Senator Ted Cruz and the group Stop Anti-Semitism. In a statement, the Anti-Defamation League said the demand to halt funding for the Hillel was outrageous. There's just one catch. The call to defund Hillel never happened. Nearly two dozen organizations, including Students for Justice in Palestine or SJP, had published an extended statement on July 26th criticizing a New Jersey congressman's pro-Israel stances. It also called Zionism one of the real threats to Jewish safety today. One line of the statement criticized Hillel's support of Israel, but the word defund or any of its variations does not appear in the statement, nor is there any other call for Hillel to lose financial backing. The statement does support two specific calls for divestment from Israel. Neither of those documents references Hillel or its finances. Our statement does not call to defund Rutgers Hillel, and we have also never in the past called to defund Rutgers Hillel. Students for Justice in Palestine told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, Rutgers Mutual Aid, another group that spearheaded the statement, sent JTA a similar response. A call from pro-Palestinian activists to divest from a center of Jewish campus life would demonstrate for many a textbook case of anti-Zionism crossing over into anti-Semitism, but it didn't happen. So how did the misinformation take hold on social media? The first social media account to amplify the defunding call was Jewish on campus, a student-led group launched last year that shares largely anonymous accounts of anti-Semitism at schools across the country and world. The group pointed to a sentence in the SJP statement that juxtaposes the Rutgers endowment with a mention of Hillel. The sentence argues that pro-Palestinian activists at Rutgers are at greater risk than Jews. Moreover, considering Rutgers' own endowment investment, uh, investments in apartheid Israel, and prominent campus Zionist organizations uh, organizations such as Hillel, with its history of falsely conflating Palestinian advocacy with anti-Semitism, it is pro-Palestine Union members, instructors, students, and organizers who are at most risk of harassment and least likely to receive support against it, an Instagram post of the statement said. Julia Jassy, one of the founders of Jewish on campus, said Monday that she thought the sentence looked like it was saying the Rutgers endowment funds Hillel. It does not. Because Hillel supports Israel, an SJP statement pushed Rutgers to divest its endowment from Israel. She inferred that the statement was calling for Hillel to be defunded. They call on the university to divest from oppression and injustice and apartheid Israel and they label Rutgers Hillel as a prominent campus Zionist organization complicit in oppression and injustice in the very same sentence, Jassy told JTA. The, statement, the statement's mention of Hillel and the discussion of divestment are in fact separated by several paragraphs. They end by requesting an SJP led audit of Rutgers Endowments, she said. The implication is quite clear. One pro-Israel activist who posted several tweets about the defunding accusation, Hen Mazig, said that in light of SJP's history, he stands by his interpretation. Mazig has 56,000 followers and his tweets about the accusation have collectively been shared hundreds of times. The way I saw it, it was connecting the dots, he said. For me, it made sense that this is what they're talking about knowing they're about divestment and promoting divestment and mentioning Hillel as one Zionist organization the university is investing in, and knowing that one of the actions endorsed in the full statement was divestment. David Schraub, a professor at Lewis and Clark Law School, who comments frequently about anti-Semitism online, said he had deleted his tweets about the Rutgers episode after reading the SJP statement more closely and determining that it had not called to defund Hillel. He said the statement was confusing and it noted that activists had sought to eject Hillel's from other campuses. But he also said the episode pointed to deep-seated dynamics in Jewish social media activism. Anytime anyone comes after Hillel, there is going to be a spinning up of the outrage machine, he said Attic. Certainly there are plenty of people who anytime they have the opportunity to take shots at SJP, they are going to be happy to take them without thinking too carefully. The Anti-Defamation League, perhaps the most prominent anti-Semitism watchdog, was among the groups that reacted quickly, tweeting its statement alongside Jewish on Campus's post on the same day it went up. One day earlier, it had announced a partnership with Hillel to track anti-Semitism on college campuses. ADL is shocked by this outrageous statement suggesting that Rutgers' blacklist halt funding for the Hillel which represents Jewish life at Rutgers, said Scott Richman, who directs the group's New York and New Jersey office, in the statement. But when Hillel International, the umbrella group for individual campus Hillos, put out a statement declaring support for Rutgers Hillel, it did not mention defunding. That's because the accusation may not have been entirely accurate, a Hillel official told JTA. A statement by the Hillel chapter at Rutgers likewise doesn't mention defunding, though it does lament that campuses have become increasingly hostile to Jewish life. The Hillel's interim executive director, Rabbi Esther Reed, told JTA that she had no further comment. On Tuesday, five days after his initial remarks, Richmond told JTA that the full SJP statement certainly makes it clear they're not focused on defunding or halting funding to Hillel. He is still concerned that the statement's criticism of Hillel points towards ostracizing a Jewish institution and Jewish students on campus. That concern is echoed by Hillel spokesperson Matt Berger, who said the most important takeaway from the Rutgers controversy is that Jewish students and Jewish institutions are being targeted. But on Tuesday, Richmond suggested that he regretted commenting so quickly about the saga on Twitter, even as he said social media remained an important arena for combating anti-semitism. As always ADL needs to be very careful with the language it uses he said as an organization that people in the community pay attention to with a strong brand and a strong reputation we have to be very very careful with how we use that bully pulpit and the responsibility that we have. He added you have the opportunity to get information out there To get points of view out there, to raise questions, to raise the issues of the day very, very quickly. The problem is when it devolves into hate and misinformation. That's not helpful. And next from JTA, Chabad rabbis take first group photo since pandemic and are fined. By Kanan Lipschitz, JTA. For Chabad Lubavitch, major events aren't over until they take a group photo. The tradition, covering the international Hasidic movement, creates much more than a souvenir. It has also generated a visual record of Chabad's growth from a small group in the 18th century in what was then the Russian Empire to a global movement with branches today in dozens of countries. Last month in Kazakhstan, the photo opportunity yielded something else, a fine for violating rules against large gatherings during the COVID-19 pandemic. More than 200 Chabad rabbis had convened in Almaty, the largest city in the Central Asian Republic. Their picture taken outside the Rixos Hotel caught the attention of local authorities grappling with a worsening pandemic in a country where only about a quarter of the population is vaccinated. They issued a fine of about $200 to the Central Synagogue of Almaty for violating social distancing measures, the KazInform News Agency reported Monday. Elchanan Cohen, the chief rabbi of the Almaty region, did not immediately reply to a request for comment by the JTA about the fine. The gathering was significant for several reasons. It marked the first official large-scale group photo for Chabad since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic early last year. It also was the 77th anniversary of the death in Almaty of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, the father of the movement's last spiritual leader and Schneerson, and the first gathering since the Kazakh government added the gravesite of the Elder Schneerson to its list of national heritage sites last year. And the event brought together two rabbis who reportedly have an uneasy relationship, Beryl Lazer, Chabad's chief of operations throughout much of the former Soviet Union, and Yeshia Cohen, the chief rabbi of Kazakhstan. Local philanthropists in Kazakhstan have enabled Cohen to operate relatively independently from Lazer, who is based in Moscow, but has a hand in Chabad's work throughout the region. This dynamic has led to tension, according to multiple reports, and the fact that both men posed together, added to the significance of the photo that signaled a return to normalcy. Zvika Klein, a journalist for Makor Rishon, who specializes in Jewish world news, wrote on Twitter. With 200 men on hand, the gathering was a far cry from previous reunions. More than 6,000 rabbis posed for the 2019 Annual uh, International Conference of Chabad Lubavitch Emissaries, the last such event to date. Last year's conference was virtual and gave rise to a days-long online celebration. The record attendance in 2019 required Chabad photographer Mendel Grossbaum, who has perfected his group photo techniques over the years, to switch to an ultra-wide fisheye lens. The normal one could no longer capture everyone in front of Chabad headquarters in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. And next from JTA, Israel to name Michael Herzog, the president's brother and a longtime advisor to peace negotiators as U.S. ambassador. Michael Herzog, a brigadier general who has a long-time relationship with an influential Washington think-tank, will be the next ambassador to the United States, according to Israeli media reports. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid have settled on Herzog, the brother of President Isaac Herzog, for the role. The Jerusalem Report first reported Thursday. Other Israeli media have confirmed the pick. Herzog, the son of the late Chaim Herzog, who also served as president, was the head of strategic planning for the Israel Defense Forces and an advisor to multiple peace negotiating teams since the 1990s. Since 2004, he has been a fellow with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which has close relations with Republican and Democratic administrations as well as with successive Israeli governments. He is currently an international fellow living in Israel. One of Herzog's most influential works, a 2006 analysis discounting the likelihood of modern Hamas, was written for the Institute. Herzog would succeed Gilad Erdan, who will retain his other posting as ambassador to the United Nations. After months of speculation, President Joe Biden has chosen Hanan Weissman as White House liaison to the Jewish community. Weissman, 37, was President Barack Obama's Jewish liaison in the last months of his presidency. Sources close to the White House on Thursday confirmed the choice. We are thrilled to have Hanan Weissman at serve as the White House's liaison to the Jewish community, a White House official told the JTA. Hanan will provide strong leadership in the administration's efforts to partner with Jewish leaders, organizations, and community members to combat anti-Semitism and hate, serve people in need, support the US-Israel relationship, and promote dignity, equality, and opportunity for all. Weissman's LinkedIn profile says he has since May been Director of Technology and Democracy at the White House's National Security Council. It's not yet clear if he will maintain that position as he assumes the role of Jewish liaison. Jewish groups have been pressing the White House to name a Jewish liaison and a State Department anti-Semitism monitor, as anti-Semitism has spiked in recent months. Last week, Biden nominated Deborah Lipstadt, a noted Holocaust historian, to be the anti-Semitism monitor. The Anti-Defamation League praised the appointment, although the White House had yet to formally make the announcement on Thursday afternoon. Especially in light of the recent rise in anti-Semitic incidents, we're pleased the White House has chosen Hanan Weissman To finally fill the position of liaison to the Jewish-American community, Jonathan Greenblatt, the ADL CEO, said in a statement, This will improve the Biden administration's ability to foster relationships with the Jewish community and work with stakeholders to address concerns such as anti-Semitism and extremism. Weissman first came to the role in April 2016 after a long stint working in the office of the anti-Semitism monitor who was at the time Ira Foreman. Weissman returned to the State Department with Donald Trump's assumption of the presidency in 2017 as a career hire, not a political appointee, and remained in the department in various capacities through April. The graduate of Georgetown's School of Foreign Service has also worked at the Pentagon on Middle East issues. He is from Baltimore, where he graduated from Beth a Jewish community day school. As Berlin prepares to put a 100-year-old man on trial for Nazi war crimes, public prosecutors in several German states have announced that they are investigating more than a dozen other suspects. Most of the cases involve concentration camp guards who may be charged as accessories to murder following the precedent-setting conviction of Ivan Demjaniuk in Munich in 2011. Demjaniuk was found guilty as an accessory in the murders of nearly 30,000 Jews in the Sobibor death camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. According to German news reports, trials are already set to begin this fall in two cases. A 96-year-old woman will appear before the Itzehoe Regional Council in Schleswig-Holstein, and the 100-year-old man is due to stand trial at the Neuruppin Regional Court in the former East German state of Brandenburg. Meanwhile, nine investigations are ongoing, and there are six more preliminary probes. Thomas Will, head of the Central Office for the Investigation of Natural, National Socialist Crimes based in Ludwigsburg, told Spiegel magazine, there is no statute of limitations for murder and accessory to murder. Thomas Walter, an attorney who represented co-plaintiffs in the Damian trial, and reportedly will do the same in this trial, said in a recent interview with the Tagesspiegel newspaper that his clients, Holocaust survivors, are just as old and the, as the accused and have never given up hope for justice. After the indictment of the 100-year-old man was handed down earlier this year, the Vice President of the International Auschwitz Committee, Christoph Hubner, told RBB Broadcast News that for the aged survivors, this trial is also an important example. The justice knows no expiration date and that the prosecution of SS perpetrators must not come to an end despite their old age. The defendant, whose name has not been released to the public, was found medically fit to stand trial for up to two and a half hours per day, according to the Am Amsontag newspaper. He is accused of being a knowing and willing accessory in 3,518 murders at the former Sachsenhausen concentration camp outside Berlin where he reportedly was a guard from 1942 to 1945. He was allegedly involved in the shooting of Soviet prisoners of war in 1942 and assisted in the murder of other prisoners with the poison gas Zyklon B. At least one other case involves a former guard at the same camp. Investigators have not yet determined whether he is healthy enough to stand trial. And next from JTA, a 20-year-old college student in Texas is mapping every Manhattan address that used to be a synagogue, by Andrew Silo Carroll. Writer Luke Sant calls them the ghosts of Manhattan. Those are the souls of the poor and the marginal people now dead, whose presence can be felt like a shade in the history of now affluent neighborhoods where they push invisibly behind it to erect their memorials in their collective unconscious. Sans poltergeists came to mind after I stumbled on a strange little twitter account called this used to be a synagogue at old shul spots. Once a day or so the account delivers a photograph of some nondescript street view in Manhattan with a tweet stating the address and the name of the congregation that used to sit on the site. That nail salon at 90 Clinton Street? That used to be Lineth Hatsedek Anche Sadlakov. The deli at East 104th Street? Something called Mach Torah Torath Kodesh. I felt that if I stared at the photos long enough, the color would fade and I'd see spectral images of Jewish ancestors ans- entering these long-gone places after dodging horse-drawn carts or steering boxy automobiles with high fenders and wide-running boards. Even the teeth-cracking names in the old Ashkenazi spellings hinted at something both ancient and familiar, like a cave drawing, or the empty mezuzah cases you see in medieval ghettos. For a time, the account didn't explain much about who was behind it. I assumed it was a white-haired amateur historian of the Lower East Side or a Jewish conceptual artist who was making a point about gentrification. So I sent a direct message and soon heard back from the creator who identified herself as Amy Shreve and agreed to chat on the phone. Shreve explained that she started the account as an academic project in something called Commemorative Geography, which is the study of memory and location. She said she was a history major and had accessed a public database from the Ackerman and Ziff Family Genealogy Institute at the Center for Jewish History in Manhattan database listed over 1,000 names and addresses of past and present Manhattan synagogues and Jewish organizations. Shreve created a big spreadsheet and then geocoded a Twitter bot using Google APIs and Python, I admit she lost me at this point, scheduling the bot to automatically post street view photographs of the places where synagogues and Jewish organizations used to be. She'd said she was originally curious about naming patterns and mapping out where people came from and really interested in thinking about the geography of Eastern Europe and see how people organized in New York based on where they originally came from. So you're a student, I asked? At the University of Texas in Austin. Graduate school, I presume? No, I'm an undergraduate. My major is rhetoric and history. Wait, how old are you? I just turned 20, Shreve said. It was just last week, so I'm not used to saying that. So forget the white hair. And to cut to the chase here, you can also forget the Jewish part. Shreve describes herself as a descendant of Mormon pioneer immigrants on her father's side and Irish famine immigrants on her mother's. This is honestly weirdly random even for me personally, she said. I have no family connections. I'm just a big fan of Jewish history. Why is that? Because I'm a huge fan of Yiddish, she said, and I needed to take a language class. When I heard that my school in Austin was teaching a language with less than two million speakers, I thought it was a rare and unique opportunity to learn a niche language. Her professor was Itzik Gottesman, whom it turns out I knew when he was the editor at the Yiddish Forward and is a notable figure in New York Yiddish circles. Shreve had read an article that Gottesman had written about how synagogues in Brooklyn had become churches, gymnasia, and YMCAs. For a separate geography course, she decided to combine mapping with what she learned in Yiddish class. Gottesman referred to Shreve in an email as a star student. On her own website, Shreve explains the impetus behind the project. People following this got bot get regular reminders that New York City used to be different. Different people lived and gathered there and had a different way of life, she writes. This bot encourages people to explore their own cities and wonder what used to be here, who gathered here. I find the site addictive. Every address can lead you down a rabbit hole, discovering along the way layers upon layers of New York Jewish history. And it is not just ghosts in empty sockets. Occasionally, there are signs of the original synagogues. At 317 East 8th Street in the East Village downtown, you can still see the tall sanctuary windows and Star of David motif that now provide a funky historical motif for a condo owner's living room. The Anshe Kaluz, people of Kaluz, Ukraine, Lechets Yosha building was sold to a developer by its Orthodox congregation in 2000 following a battle with a rabbi and medical marijuana activist who had hoped it would become a non-denominational worship space for artists and other creatives. It was the last synagogue in the once gritty Alphabet City neighborhood. At 58 to 60 Rivington Street, plaques representing the Ten Commandments and two roaring lions of Judah mark what had once been the Warsaw, Warsaw congregation which itself had supplanted a congregation from Jossi, Romania. The original congregation had hired a young architect to design the current building in 1903. That architect, Emery Roth, would go on to build various New York landmarks, including the Ritz Hotel Tower and the Beresford. Some 10,000 people attended the synagogue's dedication. After the wash inherited the building in what appears to have been a hostile takeover, became a favorite for local celebrities, including the Gershwins, Senator Jacob Javits, and comedian George Burns, or at least that was the shul they didn't go to. The neighborhood changed, and by 1973, the building was derelict. It was bought by the artist and metal worker Hale Garland in 1979, and apparently still functions as an artist's studio. Happily, some of the addresses aren't ghosts at all. There is still a synagogue at 137 East 29th Street. Congregation Talmud Torah ad says it has held services at the same location, albeit not in the same building, since 1863, the longest continuous service at the same site in the city. New York's oldest congregation, Sheriff Israel, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue was established in 1654 but it has only been in the same location since 1897. And 308 East 55th Street, once known as Chevre B'nai Levi, and founded in 1906, is now Congregation or Olam, which became a conservative synagogue in 1966. And yet most of the tweets feature gas stations, apartment buildings, housing developments, and churches where Jewish communities flourished, struggled, and eventually moved on, replaced by other groups and institutions that represent the city's never-ending process of regeneration. If there is a connection for Shreve between old Jewish New York and present-day Austin, it is in the experience of immigrants. The demographics of New York are different than Austin, but you will see how, still see how immigrants totally change the landscape, she said. Comparing the history of the Jewish people and Hispanics and immigrants at large, you see how history does have a tendency to repeat itself. Shreve has 1,016 entries in her database and said she expects the project to wind up soon. She hopes to find records for the other boroughs, especially Brooklyn, although a notoriously inept remapping of Brooklyn's streets in the mid-1800s might make that project impossible. She also hopes to get to new york one day perhaps when the pandemic is really over looking at a map is not the same as walking the streets and seeing that what is currently a movie theater or parking lot once housed minions or charity organizations she said i want people to reflect on the space and to think of the immigrant stories and religion stories that came from there and next from jta long island leaders and parents save a jewish day school by buying it by stuart ain when the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County began exploring the sale of its elementary school building in Plainview, New York, parents and local leaders were downcast. They lamented that w- uh, what would be the loss of a Jewish day school campus that had long served a number of towns in suburban Long Island. So they bought it. A dedicated group of parents and community leaders are purchasing the building and renaming it the Merkaz Academy. What's more, they plan on retaining the current teachers and staff. We worked with a small group of individuals from the administration for about two years to allow us to take over in September 2022, said Gary Katz, the former CEO of the International Securities Exchange and one of the community leaders who has been spearheading the purchase. The Hebrew Academy, founded in 1953 and known as HANC was going to sell the property as part of the school's plans to expand and consolidate its campus in West Hempstead, the seat of a large and growing modern Orthodox community about 23 miles west of Plainview. HANC bought a property adjacent to its early childhood campus at 240 Hempstead Avenue, expanding the campus to about three acres. The West Hempstead plans uh, plans call for a new building to house early childhood through sixth grade and moving in its middle school there. It made sense for us to try to limit the amount of property we had, and our strategic planning perspective is to focus on western Nassau County, Aryeh Eisner, HANC's board chairman, told the Jewish Week. Our school served the Plainview community for many years, and in any strategic move we made, we wanted to make sure we did it with them, and that everyone walked away serving the community's needs. I'm very proud we were able to enter these negotiations in an upbeat and positive manner, leading to the separation," he said. "A contract for the sale has yet to be finalized, and the sale price has not been publicly disposed, uh, disclosed, although the MERCAS website calls it a price that would allow us to remain an independent school. The Plainview School has 143 students from 18 surrounding communities, including Rosslyn, Glen Cove, Syosset, and Merrick. A former parent who serves on the school board, Katz said the HANC administration will continue to run the school this year to allow time for a proper transition to ensure it will be smooth. There has been a tremendous amount of excitement from both sides for working this out, he said. There is tremendous appreciation from the parent body that this has been done and that we can now continue to move forward. Katz said leadership of the New School has been talking with parents, teachers, and administrators to solicit their views on what areas of the school need improvement. Those suggestions will be considered by the New School's Board of Education and Trustees. Another member of the Purchase Committee is Jeffrey Lichtman of Plainview, who was a member of HANC's first high school graduating class in 1974. Lichtman, a trustee for 32 years who also served as its chairman, said the Plainview location was important to families on the eastern half of Nassau County and Suffolk County. This school is an essential part of Jewish life. In central Long Island, he added, if this school did not exist, a person in Huntington or Melville who is looking for a day school education for their child would either have to move or not send him. Were it not for this school, Katz noted there would be no Jewish day school east of the Meadowbrook Parkway, which forms a boundary between the head of the fish-shaped Long Island and its eastern body. So you can see why leaders of many Jewish communities said this is very important to the future of our families on Long Island. Parents with children in the school said they were happy to see the school continue in its current location. I went to public school, and I wanted my son to grow up with values he would only get in a yeshiva, said Melissa Raffel of Plainview, whose son entered the school last year at the age of four. We are conservative, and I was concerned because it is orthodox, but the minute I walked through the door, I knew this is where my son would go to school. They welcomed us and embraced us. It was such a warm, welcoming environment. Ora Fryman of Plainview said her 13-year-old son was in the toddler program. She and her husband, Craig, a physician, heard great things about Merkaz Academy's planned STEM, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics program. We're so happy to know that he will have a stellar education, both in terms of secular and Judaic studies, she said. I heard they will start computer coding as early as pre-K. One of the big factors in our decision to move to Plainview was this school. We are Orthodox and wanted to send our child to an Orthodox Jewish school. Lickman said he viewed the purchase as a mission to provide educational services to Jews in central Long Island. We know there are several hundred thousand Jews here that many of them would be interested in exploring as a family their Jewish heritage in addition to what a synagogue can offer, he said. There have been no demographic studies of the Long Island Jewish community in recent years, but it is believed that the Jewish population in eastern Suffolk County has declined. There has been growth, especially in the Orthodox community, in areas of Nassau County, particularly in Oceanside, according to Eisner, the HANC board chairman. We have our largest incoming high school freshman class this year, nearly 100 children, he said, and we have about 310 in the high school. Our biggest growth communities are in West Hempstead and Oceanside. And next news briefs from JTA. Pop star Billie Eilish provoked a wave of angry criticism on social media after posting a short video online promoting her new album to Israeli fans. Hi Israel, this is Billie Eilish and I'm so excited that my new album Happier Than Ever is out now, she says in a clip posted to her TikTok, the blog is really cool reported Sunday. The video was one of several that Eilish posted to fans in different countries. Pro-Palestinian social media users appear to criticize Eilish for recognizing Israel as a state. It's occupied Palestinian land, not Israel, said one. Others used the opportunity to criticize Israeli policy toward the Palestinians. Happier than ever, the 19-year-old olds 2nd album was one of the most anticipated pop releases of the year. Dutch police at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport removed 18 Orthodox Jewish girls from a Delta KLM flight bound for New York on Friday, be- allegedly because they failed to comply with COVID-19 measures about eating at proscribed times. The girls were part of a group of about 50 traveling from Kiev, Ukraine, with a layover in Amsterdam, the NIW Dutch Jewish Weekly reported Friday. On the Amsterdam-New York City leg of the journey, which was operated by Delta Airlines in partnership with KLM, some of the girls began to eat their own food outside the designated mealtime, allegedly because the flight did not carry food that complied with their community's strict kosher standards. When the girls failed to comply with requests to put away their food, flight attendants called police to remove the passengers. A group of passengers declined to follow the instructions of our staff and were escorted out of the airplane, Delta told NIW. The group was also denied its request to board a later flight that would still have gotten them to New York before the start of Shabbat when observant Jews are not allowed to travel by airplane. Rabbi Yanki Jacobs of the Chabad on campus in Amsterdam provided the girls with some glott kosher food. Relatives of the girls said the flight attendants were rude and impatient. Herman Loonstein, a prominent lawyer from the Dutch Jewish community, volunteered to represent the girls in talks with Delta. For Shabbat, the girls are being transferred to Antwerp, a Belgian city with many Orthodox Jews. They will attempt to head back to the United States on Sunday. After failing to make the indoor volleyball team for the 2016 Olympics, Alex Kleinman decided she would switch her sport to beach volleyball. She explained, I looked at the beach as a new opportunity and a chance to chase my dreams without anybody having to give me approval or put me on a roster. The decision has paid off. At her first ever Olympics in Tokyo, the Jewish athlete took home gold with partner April Ross. Seated second in the beach volleyball tournament, the team defeated an Australia duo 21-15, 21-6. Kleinman and Ross dropped only one set in the entire tournament. I still don't know if I really ever expected this to come true, said Kleinman. It feels like such a fairy tale. Kleinman, a 31-year-old California native who attended Stanford University, was inducted into the Southern California Jewish Hall of Fame in 2015. Next from JTA, Nikki Freed, a former marijuana lobbyist within office mezizah, wants to be Florida's first woman governor. She's ready for a rough fight by Ron Campeas. Before a news conference in May, Florida Agricultural Commissioner Nikki Freed stepped out from behind the podium outside her Tallahassee office to show off her shoes. I'm in sort of heels, wedges, she said, kicking back an ankle then she proceeded to call governor ron desantis who had just signed voting rights restrictions into law an authoritarian dictator who is borderline fascism freed was speaking in her official capacity at a podium emblazoned with her office's, offices crest a riot of green and yellow depicting crops running up to a farmer herding cows by the seashore today he took away our rights to vote she said i am outraged you should be outraged Freed, a self-described good Jewish girl from Miami who can can also mudsling with the best of them, is running to replace the Republican DeSantis in next year's statewide elections. DeSantis, who has his eyes on a 2024 presidential run and is not afraid to plant his flags firmly in the middle of the culture war, war battlefield, sees his threat last week to find school districts that impose mask mandates or his sharp rebuke to President Joe Biden just this week. Makes the matchup a prime test of the Trump doctrine and a chance for Freed to grab a national profile. The campaign would also pit two of the state's archetypes against one another a gregarious, Miami raised Jewish liberal who reviles the state's most famous resident, Donald Trump, and a Roman Catholic from Florida's deeply conservative North who is one of the former president's closest acolytes. Freed would be the state's first woman governor. She frequently enthuses that her election would break the ultimate glass ceiling and its second Jewish governor since the New Deal era. A lawyer and former marijuana industry lobbyist, she is the first Jewish woman in a Florida cabinet and one of the state's four top executives, along with DeSantis, Attorney General Ashley Moody, and Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petranas. Freed is the only Democrat. But first, she will have to win what will likely be a tight Democratic primary against Charlie Crist, a former Florida governor and current House rep for the state's 13th district in the central part of the state. A poll from this week found that if Crist were the nominee, he would eke out a narrow victory over DeSantis, while Freed would barely lose. She says Crist's run is reckless considering how narrow the Democratic majority is in the U.S. House of Representatives and that his seat could swing to the GOP. After the party fight, Freed, who squeaked into office in 2018's razor-close statewide election, would face a tough, federal, uh, tough general election in a 50-50 state. She says Republicans have controlled for decades through corrupt means. We have a one-party system, and that one-party system has suppressed votes, has destroyed our economy for working-class individuals, has done everything in their power to attain power. Freed said in an interview with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. But Freed is up for the tussle. Her 10th birthday was uh, her 10th birthday wish was a visit to the White House, and she ran and became her middle school's vice mayor with the slogan "You have a friend in Freed." She earned a master's degree in political campaigning at the University of Florida before attending its law school, where she joined Blue Key, a century-old honor society that has launched a hefty portion of the state's elected leaders. She started in corporate law and soon grew heartily sick of it, becoming a public defender. In 2016, Freed opened a lobbyist shop and though she was not well known, she soon secured top clients, including the state's marijuana industry. It was a timely get as voters in a referendum that year overwhelmingly favored legalizing medical marijuana. She gave money to both Democrats and Republicans, including Moody, the attorney general who has been friends with Freed since their university days. Freed cultivated the state's Democratic establishment ahead of her 2018 run, surprising better-known candidates to win the nomination and then the election. She is close to high-profile Florida Jews of her generation, including Jared Moskowitz, who until April was the state's emergency management director and earned bipartisan kudos for how he handled the pandemic, and Fred Gutenberg, the gun control activist whose daughter Jamie was murdered at the massacre at Parkland High School in 2018. Freed has been quite literally in DeSantis' face since assuming office in 2019. One of her first acts was to slap a photo of her face, smiling, naturally, on gas pump inspection stickers, which none of her predecessors had done. One of her office's responsibilities is energy policy. DeSantis was livid, and within a year, the GOP-led legislature approved measures making her replace the stickers. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening.